Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So it is uh, Advent. We are celebrating, you know, the the first advent of Christ, which I was excited about today because we're in Revelation 22 as we are looking at his second advent. And at this time of year, the staff always kind of comes around and they're like, all right, Nick, how do you want to decorate for Christmas? What do you want the stage to look like? How do you want to decorate? And it's like, I don't. I'm kind of a Scrooge. I'm kind of a Grinch. Like, we don't need all the frilly stuff up here and the little Christmas trees and all the wreaths and all that. It's like, why, 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 do, we, why do we decorating for that? Like even uh, there was one lady this morning, she had her little baby with a little onesie with little Christmas trees. And she's like, isn't he cute? And it's like, oh yeah, pagan little symbols all over your kids. So cute. Just makes me feel warm and ooey inside, you know. And it's like, as you think about that, because we celebrate the first advent and, you know, the manger like is, is him coming and being born. So that kind of is the start of his first advent and the, and the cross and the wreath, the crown of thorns is pointing to his death, which implies his resurrection, right? Because he's not here. He's next to the father. But that's his first advent. Like, why don't we, why don't we decorate for his second advents? Right? Like we've, we've studied in Revelation. We could paint the stage bridal high with blood red. We could get some birds that are like stuffed, like gorging themselves on flesh. You know what I mean? Like that would look really nice. And we could put a, a big sword up here and a rod of iron because that's the Jesus that we're waiting upon. A lot of, you know, because he, he doesn't need a manger anymore. He doesn't need a cross anymore. He doesn't need an empty grave and a, and a stone to roll back anymore. He's, he's not this lamb that's going to just pet sheep on a grassy hill. We're waiting on a lion. But if we did that, most of you wouldn't come to church and be like, oh, where do you go? Oh, the Bridal High Blood Church? Okay, sounds good. Yeah, let's go there. Can you imagine that? Your first Sunday walking in, be like, nope, I'm out. I'm gone. But we're in Revelation chapter 22, and so if you turn there for me, this is our last Sunday. I did the, the math, which wasn't hard, it's, it's counting, you know, they covered that in seminary, where we have been in, in Revelation for, this is our 26th week, it took us 26 weeks to get through it, and I hope it's been a good study for you, and, and, and it's brought up a lot of good questions, uh, some are easy to answer, other ones have been a little bit more difficult to answer, and even for us in our family. You know, like we go home and, and, and just because I'm the guy up here, my wife still says, you know, like, ah, I didn't like today, or that was a good one, or I have a question, and, you know, and see my kids get involved in those kind of conversations. It's a lot of fun. And one of the things even in my own personal life and just thinking through, you know, you look at Revelation and, you know, at the very beginning, we get a picture of Jesus, you know, because it's all about him. That's the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus. Then we go to the seven churches, and, and a lot of times we think that they're only for those churches that existed in that ancient time in which John was writing, but it's also a type of. Because if you read the small little letters to those seven, he would say that some of those churches still exist. That we would have to ask ourselves, are we that church? Are we the church that fell out of love 
fell away from our first love. We lost our first love. Are we, are we the church that is holding fast? Are we the church that looks back on the good old days and we're not looking forward to the things that God wants to do? Like he says in his word that three of those churches are still going, even to today. So they're a type of, a type of church even today. And, and then you get a couple of views of the throne room, but a bulk of Revelation was our study in that seven years of tribulation. Walking through the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, we saw the fall of Babylon, you know, there, all of those events. And, and for me, in my I kind of my own geeking out of my mind, it's like, we had so many chapters about something that we as the church are not going to walk through. But when we think about the end and the eternal state, we were only given like five verses. It's like, Lord, why didn't you give us more chapters about what that would look like? Something that we are going to experience, but we only get about five verses instead. And I just have to trust that if God wanted us to have that, we would. And the fact that we don't, it is a protection unto us. And I, and I think that, you know, even personally for myself, because if I knew too much about heaven, right, like why would I want to exist for 40 more years down here, you know? Like my wife's always like, don't eat the McRib because I want you to be around for a lot longer. Like I want to be with Jesus and I just throw him down, you know what I mean? Like you get the second one for a dollar, you're losing money on the deal, you have to. But we ask that question, what is heaven going to be like? What is this going to look like? <clears throat> There's a there's a story that I really appreciated, especially out of uh, you know being in the medical field for so many years before ministry, but there was a doctor, and he's kind of a cool doctor, where he'd bring his, his pet dog to the office, and his dog would just follow him around, so when he went into the exam room, his dog would just wait out in the hallway for him. You know, he'd meet with his patients and then and go on about his day, but his dog just followed him everywhere. Well, the doctor one day was having one of those appointments, where you got to give a really bad diagnosis that's usually tied with, you might get your things in order... You might look at your bucket list and see what's on that that you really want to do. You might get the family together. And, and the doctor, being a believer, having that conversation with one of his patients, you know, obviously all of us at some point in our life, regardless of our age, have, have worked through that question of what happens after this life. I mean, as, as sure as I'm standing up here, there's going to come a day that I will be laying up here. <laughs> and it'd be like, oh, Nick was, was and is no more. And, and we have to think about like, okay, what happens when we breathe our last? Like that is a true reality that all of us will face. And so this patient talking with their doctor was walking through that. Like what is after this life? And I appreciated the doctor's response. He said, you know, my dog is out there. My dog has no idea what, what is in here and what is going on in here. The only thing that the dog wants is to be with me. And I don't know who's back there that wants to be with me here. So, okay. I don't like that people behind me. That's the old mafia in me, people sneaking up on me. And so the, and so the, the doctor just says, you know, the dog doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't know the, all he knows is my master is in there and I want to be with my master. And so we, we will we'll get a few verses. We'll geek out a little bit. But does our heart find its fulfillment that whatever it, it will be, I'll be with him. I'll be with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their lights, and they will reign forever and ever. That's pretty much the end of the book of Revelation. Everything after that that we're going to read is just encouragement. But the revelation that is given unto John to share, that's it. And he said to me, the words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up for the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, and bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, <clears throat> and the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendants of David, the bright morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Ooh, I was hoping it was going to happen right there. You know what I mean? Like you just finished up that last verse right there, and then it, boom. You know, all of us that go, super excited. Anybody that left, grab a donut on your way out and cry for seven years. You know what I mean? Like I was so, I was like, if the Lord was asking me, like, Nick, when do you think it should be? It was like, how about right there? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? But nobody knows the day or the hour. But we ask those questions. What's heaven going to be like? What, what is eternity going to be like? Is it going to be like that old Baptist service? Yeah, I can say that because I grew up Baptist, so like, don't, don't get offended. 
You know, are we just going to be sitting in pews and listening to more preaching and more worship? Like, how much can we sing unto the Lord? <laughs> Don't ask that question. There's an answer. But what is it going to be like? You know, and we can look at the pictures of, of what heaven is, and, and we even kind of can process a little bit with our imaginations those that we've loved that are past. What are they experiencing right now because of their faith and their trust in Jesus? And sometimes we find comfort in that. And we think about the golden streets. We think about the, 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 the crystal sea. We think about the jewels and the precious stones foundation. We think about the mansions. To which if you have a brother, you're like, is mine going to be bigger than yours? See, like, like, me and my brother would always compare everything. Like I wanted the bigger present. I wanted the faster bike. I wanted all that. And it, just joking. I don't think we'd really worry about that in heaven. But we're wondering, what is that going to be like? And we are given a little bit in that, but really, does our heart find fulfillment in the verse, I think it's verse four, that says, they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. So we, we can talk about, we can have the wonder, we can let our imagination go, but do we find fulfillment in our heart? Do we find that fullness knowing we will see him? We will be with him. He is the fulfillment of our heart. He is that promise. He, he is what makes heaven heaven. Because sometimes you, you might have heard that question. Hey, if you could, if you could have all of heaven and it's it, you know, golden streets, the sea, everything we just described, the release of the curse, no pain, no crying, no tears. If you could have all of that, but without Jesus, would you want it? And of course, we're in church. We can't say yes. But it's not... Isn't it not Jesus that makes heaven heaven? Would we not still just walk on streets of gold and still have pain and suffering because we're separated from our master? Would there still be a longing and a fulfilling of our heart that is not met by anything that would be in that environment? Yes, because we only find fulfillment in Christ. We only find the full purpose of our existence in, in full eternity in Christ. It is only in Christ that we find that. And so all of that, that what heaven is, great. But what are we waiting for? Like a good Labrador outside the doctor's office to be with our master. And so we could, and, there, and so there has to be some veiling of it. There has to be a little bit of a, of, of a gap because then it wouldn't take any faith that if we knew too much about it, then, but it's a protection to us that we don't. But what we know is Jesus is there. And as we even talked last week, it's not that we just want to be with him. He wants to be with us. Even talking about the fetching of the bride and the rapture, when you walk through that Jewish wedding that the, the bridegroom just is waiting upon the answer of the father to go and get his bride. Almost on the daily, I could see a young man just waiting to go find and go get his beautiful bride. Dad, is today the day? Is today the day? Can I go and get her now? Please now, like I've been working on the house. Can it be now? And in a sense... Let that identity flow over us that Jesus is waiting for us, that he wants to be with us. You know, he's not sitting up there and it's like, oh, Nick, oh, he's coming, all right, I guess. 
by technicality, he's in, okay. He said a little, no, he's waiting to be with us. Am I, as we're going to talk about pretty much all morning into the afternoon, am I ready for that? Am I ready for the return of Christ? Am I ready to be reunited, or united, better word, with my Savior? Am I ready? And so the question even to you this morning, are you ready? And what is that going to look like? And so we do have a little bit of geeking out here. You know, we see this river of the water of life, which if you study Ezekiel 40 to 48, you see in the millennial kingdom that their temple will have a river flowing out of that. And, and what we see is as we go from the millennium into this eternal state, we still have the same river that is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. If you read carefully, you see that then the tree of life, it's not on one side of the bank or uh, the other bank of that river, but it's actually over the whole span of the river. And it has fruit that comes into season, 12 different types of fruit that come into season one month at a time, which the geek out of me is just like, okay, what kind of fruit? Are we talking like apples, bananas, oranges? Is he throwing a kiwi in there every once in a while? Like one month, do we get papaya, pineapple? Like what's this look like? Or is it it fruit that we know? Is it fruit that we don't know? And then I really mess with myself because like we understand that God is outside of time. That's one of the beautiful things about him. But now we have this tree of life that shows some sort of measurement of time because it's bringing in fruit once a month with a different fruit. So then my mind just starts running I think about the river of life. Do we get to swim in that? Do you drink that? Is it filtered? You know, like, do we need to take a filter of hope with us? Maybe like to strain it out? Like, what's that look like? And then you look, go back to the tree and you understand that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. How do you use those leaves? Like, do we dry them out, roll them up? Like, are we a bunch of potheads, you know? And he's like, no, that's not a verse defending that. Don't go there. You know, it just says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Like, there's a lot of speculation here. We're not given a whole lot of details. Because the focus needs to be on Jesus alone. And he tells us, like, hey, I'm, I have to go away. Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. But I'm coming back for you. Well, what's the place like? It'll be good. Right. Even in the little bit of vision that we have, even with our imagination, think of that one song, I can only imagine. Right? We can only imagine what it would be like. No, you can't. Song's a liar right there. Horrible song. No, you can't imagine at all whatsoever. There's not one person that's going to walk into heaven, this eternal kingdom, and be like, yeah, just, just like what I was thinking. Yeah, nailed it. Perfect, Lord. Good job, buddy. Good job. It's exactly what I was thinking. Now, where's my mansion? Do you got like a GPS to get there? How do I, you know, is there an address? Do we have streets here? Like, what are we, what are we talking? Like, no, we're going to stand there. <laughs> if we're lucky, probably fall flat on our face. It's going to be completely beyond anything that we could ever hope and imagine. Why? Because God is completely beyond anything that we could hope and imagine. And our finite brains, even in its imagination, would have to fall short of the infinite God who is infinite in his, his understanding. He's infinite in his power, but he's also infinite in his love for us. So how do we take a being that is absolutely unlike us and, and infinite in his character and his nature and his attributes and think for a moment that I can only imagine 
No. But even where our imagination just runs wild, the hope, like, if anything, all we needed was verse 4. All we needed Jesus saying is like, hey, I'm telling you, I'm coming soon, and you're going to see me face to face, and that's all you really need, because that's where we find our hope. But when you look at this tree, and you look at the river, and you see just a little bit of a picture of it all, it's all to symbolize the abundant life in this glorious city. And knowing that that's what Jesus said even when he was on this side of glory in his first advent. John 10.10, I came to give life and life abundantly. And then when we see the picture on that side of glory for eternity, you know, you could boil it down to we will be in his presence and it's abundant. What's it going to be like? Abundance. That I don't think any one of us is ever able going to be able to stand in his presence in this eternal kingdom and be like, you know, I really wish there was an in and out, you know, animal style fries. See, you guys don't even know, do you? I'm praying for you. You haven't even had your eyes opened to the goodness of the Lord of in and out. But there's no one's going to stand in need and wanting and thinking, Lord, you didn't deliver. There's going to be a fullness, the abundance of it. And we, we, you know, in our family, we talk about these things. We sit in the tension of that. We sit in the tension of this, you know, are we, we, we want these things to happen and we want God, but also it's like at the other side, it's like we got slow down a little bit. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to be a grandparent. I want to spoil my grandkids and then send them back to their parents and they're like, payback, you know what I mean? Like we want that, but at the same time, you know, as a verse that we'll read later, we should hasten the return of Christ. We should, we should plead Lord, please return. Do not be patient. Do not be long-suffering. Do not wait. But also, no, wait, because I love seeing the transformation of people's lives because of the gospel. And just wait one more day because that's more people that could grow and understand who you are. And so we sit in the tension of this. I think one of the other aspects of it that I think is just baffling to me is verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed. So it's, it's taking us back to the garden and its reference. You know, we see the tree of life there and that's where the curse began, was put on. And here in this new Jerusalem, understanding that the curse is lifted, it is released. And I think there's ways, even now as we're walking in the freedom of Christ, do we still struggle with the old sin nature. We still struggle with sin and the, and the brokenness that sin brings and the suffering and the pain and the grief that sin brings. But I think there's so many ways that we don't even see the full effects of the curse. And then again, when we stand that day with the Lord and the curse is lifted, it's like, this was your intent. This is what you meant for life. You know, some of the, you, know you hear people when somebody passes Oh, dying's just a part of living. No, it's not. Not at all. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He never said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and death. Just a part of it. He grieved at the tomb of one of his friends. Did he not know he was going to raise him from the dead? Like, did he miss that part of it? Like, did he know he wasn't going to call Lazarus out? I think he grieved. It's the smallest verse in the English version of the Bible, Jesus wept because death was never meant to be a part 
of his good creation. Brokenness was never meant to be a part of his good creation. Strained relationships were never meant to be a part of his good creation. Skepticism and fear and self-preservation was never meant to be a part. And so even now we see the struggles of that, but we could only imagine what life would be like if there's no longer going to be this curse. And so we, we, we rest in that we will be with him. And he tells us three times, and they're all written in red, if you have a red letter Bible. So they're, you know, when you see those and it's written in red, if it's repeated and in red, take notes, right? That's what got me through school is when the teachers would be like, hey, this is going to be on the test Friday. Like, I wrote that down. Like, I needed the teachers to give me some of those answers so I could get through class. But he says three times, behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. And then again, so it's verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, surely... I am coming soon. But when you look at the, you know, because we see that, I am coming soon. Well, what does that mean? What are we waiting on to happen in the world so we know that the return of Christ is coming? And we, we talk about the signs of the times, and we think chronologically. And that's not what that word actually means. Because again, it was written in ancient Greek, and we're trying to translate it to English. Not the easiest two languages, Right? And so when you read that, I am coming soon, a better English word for it to understand what the meaning was in that ancient Greek is, I am coming suddenly. It's not chronological, like you're waiting for this to happen and this to happen and this to happen, and it's soon. Like, I'll be there soon. It's not a time aspect. It's an imminent aspect. It's the doctrine of imminence, that I am coming suddenly, that God wants to keep all generations expectant, watching, waiting, ready for his return, that he doesn't want any generation to be like, ah, we got some time. Let's just keep living our lives how we are. But, you know, it's coming soon. So when we get closer to soon, then, then we'll get our lives ready. You know, we even kind of joked about it. The moment that I read the last verse and said, amen, yeah, suddenly could have been right there. That as we live our normal everyday lives, suddenly the Lord will fetch his bride and call us home and he will suddenly start the campaign of these last events called the second coming of Jesus. That there's nothing that we're waiting on. There's no signs. That, we're not seeking signs and wonders. We're seeking a savior. And it's going to happen suddenly. Like, even Paul would have more of an expectation of the return of Christ than he did of his own death. Even how we take communion. So it's symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus. And, and what does Jesus say when he instituted communion? That as often as you take this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That even as we take communion, we are in waiting expectation of the return of Christ. And we kind of picked up that, uh, another little symbolic act. Not every church does it, right? Started when I was a little kid. Sit next to my grandma in a little Baptist church. We take communion. I had that flimsy little cup. It's like, ooh, I'm strong enough. I can snap that cup. And I'd look up at her, and there's nothing you can do about it, woman. Right? And then she'd beat the snot out of me. No, she really didn't. I'm teasing. But I think one time I accidentally, but like, we, we do that here. And if you never take communion with us, like it, it's a shock if you're not ready for it. We've had a few people that they weren't ready for it. And they're like, why do you snap the cup? Like, what is going on? And it's a symbolic act saying, I don't need the cup anymore. 
I am more expecting the return of Christ than the need for the communion cup to take communion again. Because the, the cup is just symbolizing Jesus. I am more expecting to see Jesus than to partake in the symbol of him. It's kind of like Elijah and Elisha, two different guys in the Old Testament. Elijah calls Elisha into ministry, and Elisha's he's, he's working. He's got a couple ox, he's got the yoke on him, he's plowing, he gets the call of ministry, and what does he do? He kills the ox, he uses the yoke as firewood, and he has a sacrifice unto the Lord. We did the same thing when I got a call to ministry, right? Bought an ox, killed it, burned it right there in our front yard. Neighbors thought we were crazy. What are you doing? I got a call to ministry, got a new job. No, not really, we didn't do that. But that's, that was a symbolic act in a sense that I'm not going back. I need no more ox, no more yoke, no more plowing. That I have a different call in my life. And so even in that cup, we don't need communion anymore. We're not symbolizing that because I'm more expecting to be united and in communion with Jesus than to symbolize his communion in the cup. And it sounds funny, it sounds peculiar, but aren't we called to be a peculiar people? Shouldn't we be more peculiar to this world as we try to live for Jesus? So imagine your normal everyday kind of lives. You know, it's the holiday season, so you're starting to plan some of your holiday get-togethers. The in-laws are calling, when are you going to come to our house? <laughs> Never. You're my in-laws. Now, mine were here, second service. And they were like, hey, we made this sermon again. I know, there's the Antichrist right there. No. <laughs> That's a joke. They love me and I love them. They're wonderful. I can say that now that they're not here. And so you're planning, you know, you're thinking of vacation next year. You're maybe even like, I got a lunch date next, next week. Like, hey, do you want to get together for lunch? And we could, what if we had the mindset, well, if the Lord doesn't return? Yeah, we'll go on that vacation if the Lord doesn't return. Yeah, we can go to lunch next week if the Lord doesn't return. You know, like we have a little family event planned after service. Yeah, if the Lord doesn't return. People would probably think that we're weird about that. Like, you're, you won't plan anything without thinking, oh, unless the Lord returns. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's that doctrine of eminence, that he is returning suddenly. And so we, as his church, as followers of Jesus, we need to be expectant. We need to be watching and waiting and ready for his return. And I think Scripture does a great job of teaching us that. And there's implications for it of why we need to be. So we're going to bounce around a little bit. So go to Titus, if you would. So you got First and Second uh, Timothy. Then you're, you know, right before that's the Thessalonian. But right after Timothy is Titus. Nice, small little book. If you ever want to read a whole book of the Bible in a day, Titus. There you go. Three chapters take you four minutes. So Titus, looking at chapter two, I'm going to start in verse 11. And it says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's the, the very thing that we're celebrating, is the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus. And it's bringing salvation to all people. You know what's beautiful about that word all? You know what it means in the original Greek? All. That God doesn't say save, not saved, save, not saved. That salvation is available to all. But it doesn't mean that all will respond in faith and trust. But there is no one too far gone past grace that salvation is available to all for salvation. And for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen. But look at verse 12. Training us to renounce 
ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So let's talk that out. The reason that the grace of God appeared to bring us salvation wasn't just to save us so that we could run right back to the same sins that he delivered us from. The grace of God appeared to save us, but then also to train us. So yes, it's a saving grace that pulls us out of sin and it saves us, but it's also a training grace. And it trains us for what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I think that's something the church is doing a horrible job of. Because where are we supposed to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Do we stand in front of clinics? Do we stand in front of parades of ungodliness and worldly passions and renounce that? Is that what the word is telling us to do? No. Not at all. Where is the place that we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? He tells us to live self-controlled. The place where we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions is within our own heart, mind, within our own lives. The word of God has always been to be a mirror to our own lives and our own heart, never to be binoculars, to look at other people and say, oh, you're not living for the Lord. Oop, that's ungodliness. Ooh, look at you walking in your worldly passion. The word of God has always been a mirror to look at our own life and to renounce our own ungodliness and worldly passions. Is that not what Jesus said? He'd say it a little bit different. Oh, you, if, you, if you want to call it out in other people, what do you need to do first? If you see that speck of dust in your brother's eye, what are you supposed to do? Push it in even deeper. No. Sorry. It's been a day. What do you do? You remove the plank from your own eye. That it's always first about our own heart and our own life. That is where we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, right now. Doesn't matter if you're a kid or if you're 92. Didn't, remember, didn't mean to really reference anybody over here as being 92. I had a 92-year-old in here last service. That's what I was going with. You know, the kids don't get a, uh, kids don't get a, a junior dose of the Holy Spirit. And older people don't get a retired dose of the Holy Spirit either. That our lives are meant to be lived out in self-control, upright, godly lives in this present age. But what are we doing the whole time? That that grace of God has appeared and saves us, past tense, and the training, that training grace that's currently happening. What else are we currently doing? We're waiting for our blessed, what was the candle that we lit this morning? It's the candle of hope. We are waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so that grace of God appears and it brought salvation. That grace of God appears and it's training us to live self-controlled, godly, upright lives in this present age. And in that appearing of the grace of God, we wait. But what does our waiting look like? Do we wait passively? Is that what the Bible's telling us to do? Or do we wait 
actively? What does it mean to wait upon this blessed hope? But look at the very end of it. That he's redeemed us and he's purifying us as his own possession of people who are what? Zealous for good works. So what does our waiting look like? See, Scripture tells us, I think it's in Ephesians, that that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand. So, So us, followers of Jesus, as the bride of Christ, this church, God has prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that he would bring good works for us to walk in, to follow in, to to actively bring into a community, into the world, wherever it would be. And so to be actively waiting upon the Lord is not just to sit on our backsides and fill a chair. Actively waiting upon the Lord is zealous for good works. So what are some of those good works for us even as a church? And so right now we have a good work called the Family Christmas Support where we get to be a hub organization that is partnered with the School of Osage. We have almost 300 kids, over 90 families that have asked for support in providing Christmas presents and clothes and shoes. And, and, and we take those requests and we have partnered with other organizations in our community to adopt these kids. And it's not going overseas. It's not going to some other area. This is, the, this is our community. These are kids and families that are a part of the School of the Osage. Right? And one of our very own, Edie Jones, is leading this up from a volunteer position and, and connecting and orchestrating this whole thing. We're starting, I think, even as tomorrow with pickup, with delivering of presents from the organization. We've got to organize them, connect them to the parent, and give them. And in every bag of, of gifts and support that we are giving to every family, we're putting in gospel resources that the greatest gift that they're going to bring out of this bag is not something to wrap and put under a tree, but something to cherish in our heart, this grace of God that has appeared for us. But if we are a church, if we are a people who are redeemed and purified, that we are to be zealous for good works, See, one of those things that you see in the church is, you know, the pastor will come up and he'll talk about, hey, here is a good work for us to be the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus in the community. And you got to rally the troops. And what do you normally see? All right. I guess, pastor, if I want to, I don't know. I'm kind of busy that day. I got a lot going on. Now, if we're busy, we're busy. I get that. But how many times does it feel like we're pulling teeth to be the church in the community? Should we not be a people that is zealous for good works? Like Edie Jones should be sitting back and just like trying to fight off the church with a bat because so many people that are zealous for good works want to be a part of this. And think this is just one of those good works. We got some men that after our men's breakfast want to cut up some firewood ministry and and deliver firewood to families that only use wood for a source of heat and they have no financial way to provide that for themselves and we have an opportunity to deliver some firewood. And, and, And when they deliver, they always hand, again, gospel resources to say, you know, just like Jesus, he always met a physical need first, but he always met the spiritual need too. It wasn't just the physical need. He always tried to meet both. And so we, as this 
church need to be zealous for good works, knowing that that's the reason the grace of God appeared, to bring salvation, to bring training, to, for we're waiting on that blessed hope. And what do we do in the waiting? Not passively sitting back, but actively engaged in the ministry of the gospel, going forth in our lives, in our families, our communities, and around the world. That is the call of the church. And so it's not, you know, so when we, we have a, a call to action, we're not sitting back and saying, no, that is a great work, and I agree that it needs to be done, but I'm just going to sit here and wait for Christ to return instead. You would actually find yourself walking in disobedience of what it means to walk or to wait upon the return of the Lord. And so Titus tells us, you know, there's, there's, there's rewards that are given. Even Jesus says that. We read in Revelation 22. He says, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me. You can read it again in Matthew 16. He talks about that he will come and there'll be a, a repayment. There's a reward system. So there is the doctrine of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Don't add any good works to that whatsoever. I'll kick you in the face. Don't walk in heresy there. But there is a doctrine of rewards that our lives as believers, Jesus is bringing a reward to how we live our life as a believer. That's what the Bema seat is that Paul writes about in the letter to the Corinthian church. That because of your faith in Jesus, how did you live your life? And there's a reward for that. In Revelation, he is the one telling us, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me and I'm going to repay. And one of the crowns that we can be given as believers is a watcher's crown. That we are a faithful watcher, that we're waiting and looking for that blessed hope. And, and to be a faithful watcher will be even more a faithful discipler and a faithful evangelist. And there's no amount of watching that should ever replace our passion and our zeal for good works. We should never look at the work of the gospel going forth and saying, nope, I'm going to sit here and wait upon the Lord. That is not waiting upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, but that's not a passive activity. That is, that is a very active engagement in the furtherance of the gospel. If you would, turn to 1 John. This is like right before uh, Revelation. 1 John chapter 2. Same guy that wrote Revelation. John is writing and he says, And now, so 1 John 2 verse 28, And now little children abide in him. Abide in Jesus. Abide in Christ. That word abide, uh, the root is abode. It means take, find your home in Jesus. So that when he appears... We may have confidence. So we know that day's coming. It's, it's not a question if it is or if it isn't. He's telling us, little children, abide in him so that when he does appear, you may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame as it, at his coming. I mean, think about that. So how we live our lives matter. Why? Because at his coming, some of us will stand in confidence that we were ready and waiting and we were watchful, we were faithful and are waiting. But some of us will shrink back in shame in his coming. And think, like, we all have regrets in our lives. Like, so for me, like, one, a, a small one we could talk about. Like, I used to be a runner in high school. It was like 20 years ago, okay? And I know I don't look like it now, but I used to be a pretty good runner. 
But I was so preoccupied in the things of this world as, an, as a very you know, 17, 18-year-old young man, I didn't even run track my senior year, my favorite sport, the one that I did the best at. But I was so preoccupied by everything that this world had to offer that I didn't run track. And it's a regret that I still carry to this day, and I hate that. If I could go back and find 16, 17-year-old Nick, I would beat the living tar out of him and make him run track. And, and if I would have been on the, on the track running with the coaches and the team that I had, I, I know some of the things that I would have not been a part of, that it was keeping me from it. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of those, when I was a youth pastor, I was, I was okay with students being active in sports. I didn't look at, oh, they got a wrong priority. Like, some of these kids, that's the only way they're getting to college, Right? So like, how do I be a youth pastor to him? But that's one of the greatest regrets that I have is I didn't run track my senior year. And I shrink back from that in shame. As followers of Jesus, he is coming. He's bringing his recompense with us, with him, for us. And we, as followers of Jesus, we want to stand confidently on that day. We don't want to shrink back in shame saying like, Lord, I knew you were coming. I knew it was going to happen suddenly, but I acted like I had all the time in the world. Lord, I knew you were coming and you called me to lay down my life and surrender and submission to you, but I just kept sitting on the throne and of my heart doing whatever I want. That there's going to be some of us who are going to stand in shame knowing I had my priorities wrong. I handled my life wrong. I didn't steward my time here well. And hear the word. How do, we, how do we have confidence when he appears? You just read the verse backwards. How do we have confidence when he appears? Abide in him. Read John 15. Understand what it means to abide in Christ. One more place to go. First Peter, or Second Peter. So next book over. Second Peter chapter three. Starting in verse 11, it says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What's to be dissolved? Well, you just look at the verse ahead of it, get context a little bit. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So as we talk about new heavens and new earth, what happens to old heavens and old earth? It's burned up, it's dissolved out. And so since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, me, we, to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Because we know that that day is coming, look at verse 12, it says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because we know that day is coming, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Like, okay, what's the difference between the two? I think the easy definition, like it's not the only definition, the easy definition. Holiness, who am I in and who am I in response to God? And godliness, am I living a life? Who am I in response to the world around me? Who are we ought to be knowing that that day is coming as we abide in Christ, that we would not shrink back, that we would stand confidently? Who are we? How should our lives be lived out? What people what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness as we are waiting, not passively, actively waiting for, and that's the crazy part right there, verse 12, and hastening. When's the last time you truly prayed, come Lord Jesus, come. 
Revolution, re- revolution, that's pretty close. Revelation 22, it says the bride says, come. Is the bride saying that now? Yes, come Lord Jesus. The manner of our waiting, the manner of our watching matters. A mark of true salvation. You know, that's a question I have to answer in my own heart. We've had to answer it in my own house. I've had to answer it with people in our church. How do I know that I'm truly saved? It's hard because we can't judge each other's hearts. We can know, you know, good fruit from a good tree, bad, bad fruit from a bad tree. We get that, but we can't judge hearts. Only God does. What do we judge? Fruit of our lives. But what is the mark of true salvation? Obedience. A simple definition of faith. Trusting Jesus enough to do what he says. So what's it mean to be a single person, guy or girl in our world today? Trust Jesus enough to do what he says. Live a life of holiness and godliness. Well, I won't be able to do A, B, and C, and I'll have to do E, F, G. Absolutely. Live a life of holiness and godliness. Oh, but Nick, that's so easy for you. You're a married man. What's it look like to live as a married man or woman in this present age? Live a life of holiness and godliness. Submit and surrender unto your spouse. And you see, I didn't say which spouse you're supposed to, is supposed to be surrendering. That we surrender to one another out of mutual love for each other. That's what the fullness of Ephesians 21 says, 521. We live lives of holiness and godliness. What does it look like for a teenager to live today in this world, a life of holiness and godliness? Trusting Jesus enough to do what he says. What about empty nesters? The kids are gone. What do I do? Trust Jesus enough to do what he says. Live a life of holiness and godliness. Why? Because I don't want you to shrink back at his coming. I want you to stand confidently. I want you to be rewarded for your life as a believer. He's bringing his recompense with him. The manner of our lives matters. doesn't matter if we're a young person or an old person. We have the same Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, and we're all waiting for that same Savior. And then there's kind of one more tag as he's talking about all of this. The other thing that he mentions a couple times, he does it in the positive one way and he does it in the negative another way, but it's the same concept. You know, we look at Revelation and we think, um, you know, I said this a couple times and people thought I was crazy. Revelation is a book of hope and it's a book of blessing. That there's actually seven beatitudes all through the book of Revelation. You know, normally we think of Beatitudes or blessing. You know, we have to go to Matthew 5 for the Beatitudes, but there's actually seven of them in Revelation, and two of them are mentioned here. Look at verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming suddenly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So Jesus is telling us, blessed is you. Happy, crazy happy are you if you hold fast to the word of God. And then he also talks about blessed is he who washes their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter through the city of the gates. But hold fast to the word. And he says it in the, in the negative connotation the other way. Verse 18 and 19, he says, and I warn everyone that if you add to this book or if you take away from this book, it's not going to go well for you. Hold fast to the word of God. And that's kind of hard. Right? I mean, think about it like, Lord, you did a great job writing and giving your revelation to us. Like, kudos. 
But there's a couple spots that I just feel like we could add a little bit to it. You know, just to give it a little bit more fullness. You know, I know you're in the infinite God and you have infinite wisdom and all of that. But me as your created being, you know, I just feel like I could help supplement a little bit. Right? Do you hear the pride and the arrogance of that? And normally the issue isn't on adding to the word, even though that, that is in the Christianity of our world. That happens. But I think what happens far too much is that we take away from the word of God. It's like, Lord, there's some passages in there that are very difficult and they're a struggle for me. And so I'll just, I'll just highlight the parts that I like and I'm just gonna ignore the rest. You know, like I love that you, Jesus, are a God of grace and love and mercy, but I also want you to be a God of tolerance to everybody and their decisions. I want you to be a God that just allows us to continue in our sin. I don't want you to be a God of wrath and of justice and of holiness and righteousness. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna love them John 3.16s, right? But I'm not really gonna hold fast to that Revelation 3.16. If you remember that, that's the I'll spit you out of my mouth verse. But how easily do we try to add and take away from the word of God? And think, what were the first words that the serpent says when he's on earth? Did God really say? First place that Satan goes is to attack the word of God. And how easily does that happen to us where we, we start attacking the word of God? That's not how that verse is interpreted. Let me, let me show you. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, hold fast to the word and the word alone. Not what some other book says, not to what some other pastor says, not even to me. Hold fast to the word of God. I am, I am, as a pastor, I feel absolutely adamant about this. I'm called to live above reproach, but I am not above correction. I do not have this perfectly figured out. There are, I'm, I'm still in process like the rest of us, and we are learning and walking through it. I'm not above correction. And I've had people come and say, hey, what about these verses? And, the, and what I appreciate about that is we always go back to the word of God. Hold fast to the word. I mean, even in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two, it has a, a very similar connotation that as Moses, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to Israel, right? He tells them, don't add and take away from this. Hold fast to the law. Walk in it, hold to it. But you kind of have to ask yourself, why did Moses have to give a second giving to the law? Because it was to the younger generation that did not die out in the wilderness because the older generation did. But why would Moses have to give a second giving of the law? Because the older generation did not give the word of God to the younger generation. And so Moses, God through Moses, gives a second giving to the law. That's why I hear, like, doesn't bother me if a baby cries a little bit in service. Now, if you as an adult start, okay, we're gonna talk. You start screaming your head off, yeah, we're gonna ask you to leave. That's why it doesn't bother me if there's a bunch of teenagers standing in the foyer because I want to hand off the word of God to the next generation. That's why we will always put more resources, you know, in the sense of just budget alone and staff are to kids and student ministries because we're going to hand off the word of God to the next generation. And even the stats 
tell us and show us that the most fertile ground for the gospel, that most people come to the Lord, and this is like high percentage under the age of 18. It's like, of course, we're gonna put all of our eggs in that basket that we can because we wanna hand off the word of God to the next generation. And one of the things that I, I challenge our kids and our student ministries is don't dumb it down for them. You know, a lot of times you look at the world around us and you ask, like, why are these, all these young people walking away from faith so easily? Because we diluted it so much to try to make it palpable that it wasn't even a saving faith. That we set the bar so low that we didn't challenge them to anything. I think one of the greatest, two good compliments, one I got here. This is my wife. You think I'm spicy? You think I'm, you know, uh, spitfire? Here you go. Uh, Early in my time here at Calvary, uh, we were talking in another event and someone in the church came up and they said, do you ever think that you go too deep on a Sunday morning? And before I could respond, my sweet, quiet, submissive wife, my helpmate, right? The Lord knew I needed said, oh, well, this is how Nick taught in student ministry, so I don't think he should have to dumb it down for adults. Be like, this is the woman that you gave me, amen, right? I was like, and that's all she has to say about that. I had one mom in student ministry that, let's just say we didn't meet eye to eye on everything, right? I know it's probably a shock to you that I'm not the most likable person in any situation. Um, we didn't hate each other, just didn't meet eye to eye on a few things. And I had two of her kids in my student ministry and they went on to graduate and they go off to college. And one of the big things that we pushed was find a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church wherever you go. And if you need help, we would help you in that. And it's actually, if a college student doesn't find a church or a strong ministry organization to be a part of, within a month, they'll walk away from their faith. So if you have a kid going off to college, be adamant. Oh, I don't wanna to have to drive the hours to go with them every Sunday. I don't wanna see you. If you have a college kid, don't be here for the first month. Get them plugged into a, a church at home. We'll pick you back up when you, you know, they're connected to a church. So anyway, this mom was talking to, again, my wife, and she said, you know, one of the things I really do appreciate is my kids can walk into any church and they know if that church is biblically sound because of how you guys taught them. And I love that. There was one time a, a family was driving home and the parents were trying to talk to their students about what the senior pastor, we, we called it big church, was preaching. And they looked at her and said, hey, dad, have you ever heard that before? And she said, oh yeah, Nick's taught that a long time ago. I was like, yeah. Because so many times we try to treat the younger generation like that's not the same generation that God called and equipped to change the entire world. Most of the disciples, I think all but Peter, were teenagers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, teenagers. Good King Josiah, teenager. God is still in the business of young people. But we, as the Older generation, and I'm including myself on that, right? Like I see the hairstyle, older generation, okay? How do we hand off the word of God if we don't have it ourselves? You can't give what you don't have. The greatest thing that we could do as, as parents and adults that are influential in young people's lives is know the word of God and hand off the word of God to them. 
And so for us, we're going to hold fast to the word. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to take away. We're going to hold fast. We're going to take God's word seriously because it says what it means. It means what it says, and it's based on what God says, not what we think. It flows from his character. No, no one of us would be like attacking the character of God and trying to add or take away from the character, but we do that to his word all the time. It's not about what we think or feel, but it's based on God alone. And so closing our study in Revelation, and I think you could add this paragraph to the whole book. Question we've been asking, are you ready? He tells us, I am coming suddenly. Are you ready for it? Let us remember that this book was not written only to inform us as believers, but also written to warn the lost, those without a saving relationship in Jesus, of their eternal doom and to bid them, to encourage them, to plead, to beg them to seek the Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can deliver them from a godless eternity. And you know how far away eternity is? One heartbeat for every one of us. Are you ready? Will you stand confidently in that moment? Today is a beautiful morning, afternoon, to know that I am confidently in Christ. And anything that we have done in the past, his grace is sufficient. Walk in the fullness of Christ today, let alone if we have five heartbeats, five years, or 50. We're not guaranteed any of that. The only thing that we are guaranteed is that he will be with us and we are never alone and that he will lead and guide us. That is where our confidence is found, is in Christ alone. Are you ready? Father, we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for an opportunity to come into your house and to dig deep into your word. And I pray that you would find us faithfully serving, working, faithfully living out our lives, obedient to the last thing that you have called us to do and to be your church your hands, your feet, your heart into a broken world, Lord. And I pray that each and every one of us have put our faith and our trust in you, that we would surrender and submit our lives to you and allow you to work in and through us, that we would stand in confidence, Lord. And we sit in the tension. We sit in the waiting. Find us faithful, Lord. And so I pray this morning that you would stir in hearts that every one of us would take that next step of faith, that next step of confidence in you, Lord. That we would not be passive attenders, but actively engaged in the mission of your gospel. Give us that kind of faith, that kind of boldness, that kind of courage, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...